Welcome to another episode of Zistry. My name is Kirk from walruscarp.com, and with me, as always, is the fantastic, amazing author and Disney historian, Kate the Disney Cicerone. Kate, how are we doing this evening? I'm doing really good. I'm uh, really enjoying this series that we've been in, um, digging into the history of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and I'm super excited for tonight to finally get to mine train through nature's wonderland. I no longer have to yell at you for saying that the wrong color train, you know, with the uh, Rainbow Caverns mine train. I'm just waiting so. for you to yell at me about something else. <laughs> <laughs> that probably will happen. That's yes, but no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I feel that, uh, again, I had said this before. When I went to Disneyland, I didn't realize how much history was with this specific attraction. It had a longevity of time in which it operated. It also had an amazing touch uh, from Mark Davis, which we're going to dive into, uh, which is integral to kind of giving us some texture, especially to leading us to our main attraction from this entire uh, episode series to Big Thunder. I thought we could begin uh, this episode with kind of some of the changes, the big over overall changes to the ride, but then we'll move scene by scene through the attraction to kind of to get down to the nitty gritty details of all the things um, that maybe, you know, people miss or that they, they, so they can reminisce about them. Um, but we can start with the changes um overall changes. So this attraction had a $1.8 million overhaul in 1960. Um, that was the preliminary cost estimate of um, was actually 900,000 uh, that was given by Bank of America appraisers in 1959. So it obviously cost way more than what they originally had planned, which is just par for the course for Disney. But by 1963, the cost grew to um, 2 million like two and a half million dollars, essentially, which was a combined cost that was more than the Statue of Liberty, Grant's tomb, and the original production of Ben Hur combined. So it was expensive. Is <laughs> what we're getting to. Did, did please tell me you read that somewhere and didn't come up with like <laughs> you were like, hang on, let me find the most relevant things that everyone here would understand and know with my selection of commonplace uh, costs. <laughs> I feel Kate. like the this only one. <laughs> this is what's in Kate's head, by the way, is like these normal things. I feel like the only one people would recognize is the statue Liberty from that list. I did read it somewhere and I was like, okay, that's interesting. So. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, yeah. So. We're just getting started. <laughs> Welcome to Distry. So Joe Fowler was the Disneyland Operations Committee um, and Earl Vilmer oversaw the construction and maintenance division. So they're the ones that kind of like oversaw this project as it went on. Um, it was it became a 2,307 foot long track in a nine minute show. If you remember last time, it used to be a seven minute show. So they added two minutes onto the show time with this new attraction that they're the, the, the overhaul of the attraction. So it's based on five true life adventure films, which are nature documentaries that Disney did. One was uh, In Beaver Valley, which was 1950, The Olympic Elk, which is 1951, Bear Country from 1953, The Living Desert, also from 1953, and The Vanishing Prairie from 1954. So we'll see those when we dig into the attraction. We'll see a little bit more about specifically what they pulled from those. But that's just in general. It's true life adventures, what we're going for here. 
They also had, um, they added tunnels and Cascade Peak, which we'll talk about later. Um, and they now crossed over a pond and a spur next to Rivers of America. Do you want to talk about that just a little bit, Kirk, the, where the track goes? Yeah. So uh, it would exit our Rainbow Ridge area and then go over into Beaver Valley, then Cascade, then go over this trestle, which would go right next to Bear Country. Which, according to uh, a couple of guests, that was the scariest part of the attraction because it was elevated right above uh, bears that were in the water below. Then it would go through a natural arch, then out to uh, basically went into the living desert area, which I, through my research, this is basically Arizona for the most part, or like the southern part of Arizona tipping into kind of Mexico. So there's a cactus forest, the bubbling paint pots. Uh, that watering hole ponds, they're going to be adding a dinosaur skeleton graveyard. And then we finish off with the grand finale heading into the Rainbow Caverns and then finally exiting into uh, Rainbow Ridge yet again. Yep. <clears throat> well, sorry. <clears throat> yup. <laughs> yup. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I'm going to break the wall here. Kate is jet-lagged from an amazing trip. She did an awesome job live streaming, walking around all the parks in Walt Disney World, talking about her new book. And uh, this is the byproduct of that. And I have to admit, <laughs> I'm really enjoying tonight. <laughs> I've got like, no, I've lost all of, I've lost the plot. It's great. Um, <laughs> all right. So I have a quote from Art Linkletter, who, if you know, he did opening day of Disneyland. He was one of the commentators for that. And so he's, he's like a friend of Disneyland in that way. Um, he described this area as faithful recreations of the forest regions of Wyoming, the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico, mountain terrain of Colorado, and many other sections of Western wilderness. These are dominated by Disneyland's second great mountain, Cascade Peak, visible from almost all Frontierland and easily recognized by its giant waterfalls that plummet from rocky ledges high on its granite slopes. Um, I also say that uh, Bill Evans, who did the landscaping for Disneyland, he used more than 156 different types of trees and plants. So they also not only did the track change, but there was an overhaul like vegetation change to this area where they added a tremendous amount of, of um, trees and plants to it. So on a really kind of a side little story about Walt Disney, when he was doing one of his inspection tours on the mine train, he said, move all those trees, the ones that are next to the track, back 50 feet. I want people on the big trains to see what's going on in here. Those trees keep it hidden from them. So he basically was just going on the ride and he's like, all these trees that are right next to the track here, just move them back 50 feet. And they're like, you know, move it on. <laughs> it's like, replant all these trees. Well, I mean, funny. I don't know. This, this uh, during my research, there's a lot of problems with this attraction in general. And there's a reason why it doesn't exist after 77. But the truth is, it was probably really challenging to see everything on this and would require you to go and explore both sides of the train because you're you're sitting on a bench seat looking toward like inwards so basically your entire view has to be like over your shoulder one way or the other or looking dead straight at a stranger's face you know so i mean it's it's not the most because it doesn't look forward and you're looking out like your traditional 
Disneyland Railroad, uh, and and you're looking inwards, it, it create that bench seat creates a lot of um, viewing angle issues. It does create a lot of issues, and actually, um, that's one of the changes, sort of, that they made in this attraction is the staging. So, in this mining car, they had the the people sitting face to face, and then creating their necks to see, like you know, or trying to turn around. And sometimes you couldn't even see the things that were there, which was a huge problem. So, Mark, I have a quote from Mark Davis that says. I told Walt, seeing ahead of you is a natural instinct of self-preservation, which it is. He bought that. There were two kit foxes about 100 feet apart. One would move his head from side to side and the other move his head up and down. I put them together and this immediately creates a little tableau with one saying yes and the other saying no. I went through the whole attraction and did little things like that. And Walt thought it was great. After that, he became very interested in staging things from the point of view which you were looking at. So the whole idea of staging from a forward-facing direction, that happened at this point. So if you look back in Disney history, before that we have rides like Storybook Land Canal Boats, where the scenes are sometimes behind you while you're sitting on the boat. Actually, most of the time, unless you're looking across from you, right? There's also Casey Jr., which is the scenes are not staged in front of that necessarily as you're going. A lot of the stuff is to the sides. Um, and then Mark Twain, everything was on the sides of the boat, not forward, but, you know, you can kind of walk to each side. So it's not as important. And the railroad, too, had the the Disneyland Railroad had seats that all faced the engine in front for their their first couple of uh, trains that they had. And then later they did. They're like, everybody's trying to look to the right because they're doing a giant circle around the park for the Grand Circle Tour. So the, the later cars for Disneyland were all made so that they face inward. So everybody is looking and at what they want to look at rather than having to crane their necks to the side to see all the things. So Mine Train was such a significant attraction in that this is where they figured out better staging. Yeah, I have another quote from, again, uh, the Mark Davis in his own words, Imagineering the Disney Theme Parks Volume 1. It's a very short title. And it's a very light book. (laughs) These things weigh like 20 pounds. The first thing that I said that was wrong was that these mine cars, so you sat there, three on one side, three on the other, looking at a stranger in the face, and you couldn't see ahead very well. So you tried to look over, and they tried to look over you. They couldn't turn to see. This is like when I go to a theater, and there's a vacant seat in front of me. I'll say to Alice, swipe, I'm just waiting for a basketball player to come in and sit down. This is one of those things I thought was just terrible, you know, which, I mean, happens to, I think, all, all guests... That's like a common uh, occurrence when like somebody's in front of you at a parade or maybe you're getting posted up waiting on Main Street for the fireworks to happen. And then sure enough, first firework ready to begin. You just see him <laughs> lift the kid up, put him on the shoulders and you're just like, yep, it's always you're like, this was the perfect spot. And you're just thinking in your head how wonderful it is that it's the perfect spot. And then it's always it's either the kid or somebody with a phone or an iPad, like right in front yeah. of you. Like, Listen, I, I'm a, I understand people will record things and that's fine and fair. I always say, keep your devices below your, like where your head is. That way, yeah, if your device right, is here, like nobody can see behind you. Or it, when we, when I have to hold my kids, you just hold them up to no higher yeah. than you are. You put them yeah, over like your shoulders, your forget about it. It's un, It's unfair. You're cheating. Yeah. So there was other things that also changed with the trains. Um, they they might have changed color, right, Kirk? They did. 
they didn't might they did you know because they they changed to a magnificent yellow look at them they're purdy you know it's really interesting when i saw the when i was doing this research and i was looking through some of my old pictures from yellowstone and that's when i made this connection that they i think they chose that color because that was the color of the touring buses in Yellowstone National Park from the 30s to the 50s, is they were this yellow color. And I think I even have a picture of it. This is what they look like now. <clears throat> when you go to visit, they have these yellow touring buses mm. inside. But these are actually the real ones that they used in the 30s and 50s. They still use them for some tours. They're made by the White Motor Company Model 706. And uh, yeah, they're still used for park tours for transporting guests around the park. So this would have been very, very familiar to people in that era, reminiscent of touring a national park. So it makes sense that the, they would then um, color the train yellow, right? Not really. I mean, you know, you could just keep them green. Why bother changing it? But he was all confused. No, I mean, listen. They, they <laughs> you're beg, like no, <laughs> no. They beg, borrow, and steal from everybody, and uh, it makes sense to take something from a national treasure from an amazing, amazing national park. But uh, the the truth is, they probably changed it for another reason. It's so that you knew it was a different attraction than the one you were on before. That's it. Yeah, it's, I'm sure a it's psychological it's... change. Well, yes, I think that they did change it so that it's a different attraction. But I think why did they choose yellow? Of all things, I think yeah. it probably is. I think that's very, yeah, totally. Um, the train also expanded to seven cars, and the capacity increased to must be seventy. I think it was seventy-four guests. I wrote seven guests. <laughs> Wait, how many? How many cars was it? Seven cars expanded to seven cars. Uh, Forty-two, um, right? Because if it's three by three. It said 70, 70 something, 74, 76. So, mm. yeah, maybe this could cram more people that we could see. Maybe there. with like kids and stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, I also have a really interesting kind of note that was from the guide for Nature's Wonderland from the hosts and hostesses from University of Disneyland, which is the precursor to Disney University, if you know, that is what the cast members go through to learn Disney culture and to. You know, um, it's kind of an introduction to working there, right? So they have a guide for a specific attraction for their hosts and hostesses, what they call them. So no dress designer can duplicate the wardrobe of nature. No prop designer or special effects man can do better than a meek imitation of nature's own trees, rocks, and waterfalls. It's impossible to compete with the Aurora Borealis or Pacific Sunset for a backdrop. But in nature's wonderland and Disneyland, people from around the world can enjoy nature as it is, or as it was, with accuracy and fidelity. To bring the beauty of drama of nature to mankind has been one of Walt Disney's interests. Now, it requires the many skills of the backstage crew who maintain this attraction, and the storytelling skills of the onstage crew to put on a good show. And I do have a little note. I don't. Need, I didn't know where to put this, so I'm just putting it here. I have a fun fact. The cast member with the most mind train derailments, the title holder for that, um, according to the Order of the Red Handkerchief, which we learned about in a previous episode, is Ron Dominguez. So if you know the Dominguez tree in Disneyland, if you know Ron Dominguez's work in Disney, I think that it's funny that he has the title for most mind train derailments because he kept forgetting to throw the 
throw the switch, apparently, is what caused it. So he liked to derail the train by didn't, accident. Didn't they then implement some sort of uh, mechanical switch so that it would be I impossible? I think so. They, I, I remember distinctly reading that somewhere that they ended up implementing some sort of automatic switch system so that it wouldn't be an issue in the future. Yep. I think you're right from what I understand. But <laughs> runaway railway Ron. <laughs> that was a good one. I also have just a few changes to Rainbow Ridge before we kind of like dive in. Do you have anything else that's kind of like an overview of the construction of it? I mean, the biggest thing that they wanted to change, right, out of this entire decision making process is to to make it a more enjoyable experience that is fun. So the addition of animals and sight gags was a key to making this a more enjoyable attraction and kind of punching it up. Well, you think of like we talked about in our Jungle Cruise series, how it was a little bit dry in the beginning, right? It was kind of like, oh. You would think a thing. water ride would be so dry, but you know. <laughs> that was a good one. I think it was the same with this attraction as well is that it, it did have some educational facts and fun things and stuff, but it, there was no real sight gags necessarily behind, besides a few couple of things when it was um, Rainbow Caverns Mine Train. So they did add so much visual interest to this when they um, added on all these new um, animatronics and things, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I did want to mention just a couple of small changes that happened to Rainbow Ridge. And one of them was the Rainbow Ridge Opera House was added. And that had Lotta the Miner's Darling, who would perform daily. Um, so then you can hear her voice coming out of the Opera House as well. So there's L Lotta the Miner's Darling. And uh, a lot of houses actually got added to this area. It was basically like the town went through a bit of a boom. And so instead of just houses on a couple of levels down below, they ended up going all the way up the ridge. So they added a whole bunch of different houses as well as vegetation to uh, just fill it in a little bit. I'm actually really excited to see which ones still exist in the future. So when we get to Big mm -hmm. Thunder Mountain Railroad, I'm excited to see which portions of the original Rainbow Ridge are still there. I don't want to talk about it now because it's a whole derailment, but yeah, it's no, just <laughs> right. it's it's really cool. I love seeing this progression. Me too. That's pretty much all I have for Rainbow Ridge. Besides this, like there's just more buildings. There's the Opera House, and there's a leather goods store, and there's just like more more stuff in general. They just filled it out a little bit. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of any of the specific animals because I think we'll do that as we move into the attraction. But I do want to talk about overall the animatronics um, and why we have so many animals. Um, so there's more than 200 animals that were added in 1960 to this attraction. And it was touted as the most elaborate and ambitious animation project ever attempted. So this was not as sophisticated as later audio animatronics. So you're thinking like Mr. Lincoln, you're thinking Tiki Birds, not quite at that level yet. Uh, but they did have some animation, usually like one or two simple movements. You think of like the ones that they added to the Jungle Cruise around the same time. Um, same same kind of idea where they have like one or two, like move back and forth or up and down, those kinds of things, right? Um, 
most of this movement was made with electronic hydraulic pneumatic technology combined with cam lever technology. And they really just took advantage of a whole bunch of recently declassified NASA and military technology that, that now was available to them, right? We talk about the magnetic tape that came from the Polaris submarine technology um, for the Tiki Room. They also had new plastics, fabrics, metals, and solenoids to work with as well. So they just had this like a mass of new technology that they could do things with. So they did. Um, they also had new hydraulic and smaller servo mechanisms. So everything got smaller where it used to be gigantic. So they had more options of what to do with it. And uh, <laughs> uh, Kirk is demonstrating <laughs> said movement <laughs> as, I, as, a, as a robot. <laughs> oh, this, this is I memorized this. This is exactly what they do in the ride. <laughs> what animal does that? Uh the uh beaver is chopping <laughs> like a karate chop is that what you think the beavers how they wouldn't it be better to be like a woodchuck you know like chuck norris like woodchuck norris is this thing um, on um so the funny part, so the, all the cams and mechanics were hidden under the skins or um, Ew. sometimes they're hidden Ew, under the... Dude. What? <laughs> they had no, skins. Just, uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're hidden under the skins or the ground holding the base. So from our Bob Thomas biography of Walt Disney, um, he said all these were formed in plastic, stuffed with me mechanical innards, and covered with real skins treated for weathering. So they were real skins, but they switched to synthetic in 1962 because Walt didn't like the idea of using real animal skins. He was very much an animal lover. He did not like uh, animals being um, killed for Disney attractions. He didn't like the idea of that. I believe it was when they were doing the, what was it, the the Grand Canyon diorama and he went into like a fridge or something and he pulled it open. It was just like a whole bunch of like dead animals looking at him because they were doing taxidermy. And he was just like, we can't we can't do this. Like, this is not what we want to be known for is, you know, killing animals so we can use their fur for attractions. Um, beyond that, real skins also had a tendency to be worn away faster and also get eaten by ants. So there's that. sorry if anybody was like eating lunch. <laughs> So the animals were then bolted to rocks and trees and sometimes uh, even cement or fi fiberglass rocks or trees would then hold all the electronics. So if you saw as we go through these animals, kind of like you can kind of picture like they're not just on that rock necessarily because they're just staged there. Literally like all their wires and, and like mechanical pieces are like inside the rock or inside the tree. So keep that in mind as we look through all these animals. Um animals in the water like fish and bears and beaver had timer controls and proximity switches to trigger their swimming and animations like kirk remember like how we saw that in jungle cruise how there's yeah. a there's a infrared beam and the boat crosses it and then that triggers the movement or the sound or whatever this is probably from promotional stuff i think is where this came from we have stocked our preserve with over 200 amazingly realistic animated animals and birds including almost every species still roaming the north american continent that seems like a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, I think it was only 204 audio animatronics that they ended up utilizing here. And I only it's an immense undertaking for them to add these in there. But yeah, you can't have every single type of animal 
like every, every species single. in the North it's American impossible. continent. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that seems like really try Are you just sure? like yeah, it's impossible. I think that's that's all of the pre-ride stuff that I have. Mm-hmm. And then I'm I'm ready to go to Beaver Valley when you are. Maybe you want to start us there because I feel like I've been talking this whole episode. Okay, I got you. <laughs> I will. So I'm going to pull up real quick a uh, uh, script that I have here. And so I'll, I'll take us out with just the little piece that leads us into Beaver Valley, right? It's a couple sentences. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the little mining town of Rainbow Ridge, the gateway to nature's wonderland. As we head for the wilderness, a couple of suggestions. Please stay seated at all times and keep your hands and arms inside the train. The animals get mighty hungry and no smoking, please, because we do not want to start a forest fire. No joke. People would smoke. You know, I mean, this is the 50s here, so or 60s now. Uh, so yeah, it's, I think that's interesting that in their safety spiel, cause you would be outside and you'd be going slow. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, I mean, don't smoke. Now beyond the hills lie nature's wonderland. You're apt. So right now we're about to be rolling into a tunnel. You're apt to see a whole lot of wildlife. So keep a real sharp hunter's eye as we come out of this first tunnel. Which I guess is just like a hunter's eye. Like, are we looking for pelts here? Are we hunting? Well, like, yeah, like hunting animals. Right, yeah, exactly. We'll be entering Beaver Valley. Looks like the beavers are building another dam. Yes, sir. They're really busy as a <laughs> busy as a beaver. Uh, <laughs> Prince. Yeah, so you can see going into going into the. A uh, little tunnel there at the bottom, and then going um, into Beaver Valley. That's the first first stop in this new attraction, rather new old attraction, which again comes from the true life adventure, Beaver Valley. So it's just a nature documentary. If you ever get a chance to watch it, um, I think several of these are on uh, Disney Plus. If you'd like to go and and watch about the beavers, yeah, a good portion of them are on YouTube too. If uh, you're lazy. Yeah, there's there's eleven beavers all together, and um, the documentary comes from 1950. There's a whole bunch of detailed sketches of from Mark Davis of beavers like swimming in the water and whatnot. I don't know if you have any of those handy. I don't know if I've I do. gotten mine. I do. Okay. Hang on. I've got this this guy. This close up is everything. <laughs> oh, hang on. You know what time it is. It's not a oh, display yeah. without a reason. I'm ready. Hang on. I gotta get. Closer, pause up now. <laughs> teeth. <laughs> Here are I'll give you the precursor beaver sketches. Yeah, so there you can see some of the sketches, uh, preliminary sketches for Mark Davis of like what the beavers could do, and uh, a lot of them swimming in the water, and uh, with some predators as well, kind of watching them. From a service soft exchange article, there's a little bit of information about the action of the beavers for the animation because oh, please, this was such new please technology. Tell us the, the action of the beavers. <laughs> you ready? Okay. Beavers building a dam, swimming, diving, and carrying branches to their home in lifelike fashion. These beavers are moved along on underwater tracks by means of a water jet. The flow from the jet is kept constant, assuring a smooth swimming action. 
by a pressure-reducing valve, which is hidden and partially submerged in the beaver dam. So, so that beaver dam is not, like, empty. It actually has, like, a pressure-reducing valve system <laughs> with the jets of water to keep damn. beavers, like, moving. <laughs> There's a lot in there. <laughs> We're going to give them the full dam tour. <laughs> I mean, Kate, if you want to take your damn time, go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. So I do have a full a few notes on the, the foliage from Beaver Valley from Morgan Evans. Um as the passenger on the Nature's Wonderland Railroad emerges from the first tunnel on the mine ride. He sees beavers at work on their local dam project. (laughs) (laughs) Pine trees framing the scene are a mixture of Monterey's from California and Aleppo's from the Holy Land. The birch trees are from Europe. The cottonwoods are from the southwest United States. So they actually have trees from the Holy Land in Beaver Valley. <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> yeah, look. Oh, my God. He's petting that damn beaver. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, where was I? Um... The mountain meadows of California supplied the thick stands of rushes found along the river. And the other curious reed at the water's edge, known as horsetail, is an old-time resident of the United States. It dates back about 40 million years, according to the paleontologists. We also have native water primrose, which we inherited. It just crept out of the mud and joined us. So that's from Morgan Evans, who, um, along with Bill Evans, did the landscaping for Disneyland. And uh, so horsetail... Do you, I mean, do you guys probably don't have horsetail where you are? Do you? Mm-hmm. We have it here. So we have them here. <clears throat> they look like, I don't know if you can pull up a picture of it, Kirk. But Horsetail? Horsetail, yeah. So horsetail is found a lot in the, I think, the western part of the United States. I'm not a horsetail expert. I had this growing <laughs> up. <laughs> I did have this. <laughs> I did have this so growing up around my house. Uh, and it grows usually kind of near watery places and like, you know, like, damper places and um what's interesting about it is what i've heard is like indigenous people use this and you would break it open on the inside is something that will soothe like mosquito bites and things like that it's oh, like kind cool. of like a yeah like a liquid inside so have you ever tried it you i have because i i had it in my backyard and it, it seemed to help so oh, but i cool. always learned it was like a prehistoric plant like it's just been around forever so if you've never heard of horse tail that's what they look like and that's what they also had. Uh, they planted here in Beaver Valley. I also have some words of wisdom from Walt about beavers. Are you ready for this? Oh, God. All right. Hang on. Hang but, on. I'm not. I'm but... not. I will be in a second. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Words of wisdom from Walt about beavers. Everyone needs deadlines, even the beavers. They loaf around all summer, but when they are faced with the winter deadline, they work like fury. If we didn't have deadlines, we'd stagnate. Mm. So beavers teach us about the diligence about 
meeting our deadlines. I don't I don't know about that. I feel like they're telling us that it's okay <laughs> to be procrastinators as long as you get your work done. Which I mean, I guess I guess in some ways that's very true, you know. In in most professions, as long as you get your projects done in time, does it really matter how long it takes you? That's 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 fair, I guess. As long as you're meeting your obligation, doesn't matter if you complete it. But I love that it's like they lay around all summer. Yeah. But oof. everyone needs deadlines, even the beavers. Maybe that's what he's telling those kids there. <laughs> like, did you know that these beavers have deadlines? <laughs> the kid on the right is like, what's a deadline? <laughs> and then the kid with the hat on is like, oh, no, I didn't do my homework. <laughs> I have another little view of the beavers here. They're just hanging out there. They are cute. They're really cute. I mean, there are some that are in the water, obviously. There's not a really a lot There's, of really great. You can see one right here. Though. It's really hard, but they but they do circle around. I actually think hang on, give me a second. There is a, a quick video of them moving around. Like you can see them. You see them swirling around? Hang on, I'm gonna go back. Real quick, real quick. Eyes to the right, bottom right, here they are swirling. See I'm moving? Yeah. They yeah. definitely are on some sort of like turntable roundabout style. Yeah, yeah one it's like a jet right of water here. that's making them go around. Oh, look at them go. Look yeah, them go. they're cute. They are cute. And look, you can now see these ones in the water a little bit better. I do have something about the raccoon that's in the area with the beavers. Do you have any raccoon facts? Uh, I do have raccoon facts. I have exactly uh, one picture of the raccoon. Okay. What do you got? It's, it's not a great one. But here, he's kind of like looking in the water. So I have in that Mark Davis book... It shows one of the sketches that he was thinking about doing, and it says the narration, Mama Raccoon sure looks worried. You don't suppose there's some dangerous varmint aboard this train? And it's different than the way that it's illustrated here. I, it doesn't mean that this doesn't exist in combination with that raccoon, but this one... I feel like that is a 1975 edition. Does it say 75 at the bottom? Uh, you know what? I don't know. It doesn't. This one isn't dated. Okay. But it's possible because it looks similar to the 75 ones that are around it. So it's possible. I don't know. I don't. I tried to find that too, if that existed anywhere in the attraction or if it was like a concept that never quite made it. And I, I was unable to find that information. All I found was this lonely little picture of this little raccoon looking in the water. He's so cute, though. He is cute. And I do have a cost for him. He cost exactly $3,294. I think that's all I have on the raccoons. I will yep. say something that I forgot to mention was that um, they did add a pre-recorded narration to this that was optional. Which is kind of interesting that oh, wasn't yeah. required. Huh. So they had a pre recorded audio track that was by Dallas McKinnon. And so the operators had the choice of using the pre recorded track or the live spiel. Um, the downside of the live spiel was because those in the back of the train, because the train was so long, they didn't see what the operator was talking about until a lot later. So the show quality essentially was decreased if you got you were sitting in the back of the train, which is very not what Disney was about, right? It was, they wanted everybody to have a good show. Uh, having them do the spiel made it a worse show for the guests. 
So that's why they did the pre-recorded one. And I think it's interesting in this one. And he's not using a two-fingered Disney point. He's just straight up pointing. Well, you know, do you think that was the reason why they decided to do something like living with the land and removing that narration, at, like being yeah. a live cast member? I mean, there's cost cutting that involves that. But everyone gives a different little speech. I actually was really worried when they were making the Jungle Cruise editions that are we going to get a rock audio animatronic on each one of the boats with some sort of narration? Like, I don't, I did not want that. Not like that would be really do doable. That. It would be also too expensive, I think, in comparison to skippers. But like, that's the one where if you're going to not have a pre recorded narration, that's the one. But, it, you know, if they did it, they would probably just dump the skippers and just play a loop and have a, like, they'll make a reason why the, boats can move on their own yeah that i think that would be in an it would be in an extreme measure just because of the history of the skippers in that attraction like they're part of the attraction and so yeah. removing them would be very very strange but yeah i did think about that with living with the land especially those ones that are kind of they're like two boats attached right if you got all mm -hmm. the way to the end of that boat you wouldn't be seeing necessarily what they're seeing especially with like how small some of those areas are right so yeah it could have been not just a budget issue, but also a show quality issue. So Yeah, I agree. Entirely possible. Okay, so we did beavers. We did. We talked about raccoons. Um, another thing that's in Beaver Valley is the bounding deer, which I don't have a lot of really great pictures of. Do you have many pictures of the deer? I don't have. The only thing I have next is marmots. But there's, I mean, there's so many animals. I don't even have the deer on... This is actually a pretty good, uh, this map has lots of details on the, the individual animals. So like beaver, bullfrog, squirrel, coyote. Uh, I don't think it's the battling Olympic elk yet when you're talking about the deer, right? We're not no. misconstruing. No, they're, they're a totally different thing. Right. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thrush jay, gray fox, cottontail rabbit, raven tree, raccoon. And then the marmots before we head into Cascade. Oh, Peak. yeah. I have something for the raven tree, too. But I have bounding deer, which I'm pretty sure in this area because that's what I've seen from my research. Maybe they're just not on this map. Yeah. I mean, just because, I mean, I'm seeing bounding bighorns. <laughs> bounding no. bighorns. Yeah, yeah. It looks different. like there's a ram. Uh, yeah. Antelope. Yep. No, no. I, I mean, it would make sense that if deer were going to be anywhere, it would be either in here or in bear country. Well, the bounding deer like are actually in uh, in Beaver Valley in the documentary. The bounding deer are in there. So it yeah, makes so sense this, that they would be yeah, in this area. So I have a little story that is from Bob Kerr, who helped design the animatronic for this deer. <clears throat> And this was actually one that was removed within the first month. So it that's probably why it's not on this map, Kirk, is because it was removed so early from okay. this attraction. So Bob Gurr says the idea was that a deer would traverse through a triangular course through a mountainside forest while appearing to jump along the course. The jumping action was supporting the deer on a wheeled carriage with its feet connected to crank arms. The simple action looked pretty good. The carriage ran in a concrete trough pulled by a wire rope circuit. When the machine ran, it looked believable, Bambi prancing through a forest. The bugaboo that killed this insane design 
was that the wire rope just would not stay stitched together, unraveling every few days. Thus, it was soon abandoned. Anyone living today who remembers seeing it in action is lucky indeed. It qualifies as my worst design disaster of all time. I wonder why they didn't replace it with like cabling versus like actual threaded rope. Yeah, I don't. Well, it's wire rope. Wire so rope. What is that wire sounds, rope? That sounds that like sounds cabling, like cabling. It? Yeah, it does. Maybe they just need a better cable for it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, maybe it's maybe it's uh, like a flexibility issue because it, they probably were wrapping it around something at an angle that was, you know, versus yeah, using like some sort triangle. of like wider pulley. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like it's like like if it had been a circular, maybe or wouldn't. I yeah, probably would have reduced tension or something. Yeah, I don't even. I'm not an engineer, so <laughs> like I don't know, but yeah. There must have been a solution for that, but it wasn't worth the cost by that point of like saving it. So they just they just took it out. Did they? And they didn't. They didn't just put it as a stationary animal because almost all the animals have motion here. Well, I mean, they do have stationary deer, and they have stationary elk and things like that alongside um, the train. But from my understanding, this particular one looked like an animatronic. Like you know, they have. It looks like a mechanical thing that should be moving, so they probably just took it out, from what I understand. So okay. <laughs> that's all I have on the bounding deer, but it's the worst desa design disaster of all time, according to Bob Gurr, from all the things he made. Other things in Beaver Valley, you said there was frogs. I didn't see any pictures of frogs. Yeah, so again, I there's no... It's really hard to find pictures or video from this, uh, but it mentions a... And this could have been a later edition, the coyote, because we see the coyote in Mark Davis's uh, standing on the beaver dam. So that's possible that happened in in uh, a later edition. But bullfrogs, squirrel, thrush jay, which is bird, uh, cottontail rabbits, raven tree, raccoon, and a gray fox and marmots. Yeah. Well, I guess we're at the marmots then. Should we do some marmot talk? Yeah, yeah, I can do some marmot talk. So I, <laughs> I have, when we get to the marmots here, I'll actually show you, this is like the worst grainy, it's like this Zabruder film of Bigfoot for marmots. Uh, you can't see hardly anything, but it's basically prairie dogs that are jumping up and down, and they uh, they make like a whistling sound. And the whistling sound was actually in the spiel itself, uh, and this is exactly how it went in the script. Them marmots over the tunnel must be whistling because it would be like, <laughs> oh, you pretty gals. So I guess uh, marmots were taking a liking to the ladies that were on the train. <laughs> oh, they're whistling the women. Yeah, that's what that's it said. terrible. This is actually, this whole entire script is actually really... Uh, there's, it's pretty chauvinistic. There's this one, this one would get a laugh. Cause I remember in, in Dave's, uh, Dave recounts, hang on. Why don't you say something about marmots while I find this section of him recanting <laughs> about being whistled at. Okay. So each marmot would raise up one at a time, lifting arms and, and, and chirping. Right. So Walt used to walk the track and keep an eye on all these audio animatronic animals that populated the ride. Um, and then he was once he was sneaking up on Jimmy Walker, who was a former cast member. And so he remembered this story about Walt um, while he was working on the marmots that popped up on the hillside. He said, I was grooming them with a GI brush, combing them clean and straight. I turned around 
and Walt was behind me, and he said, you don't do it that way. They're supposed to be all ruffled up when they come up. So he got basically yelled at by Walt Disney being like, stop grooming the the marmots to stop. <laughs> They're supposed to look ruffled. You know, I mean, yeah, that's a that's <laughs> sage advice from a wise man. There was also a golden eagle, which was in that picture that you showed that was watching the marmots perched in a nearby tree. So the golden eagle would then open its mouth and screech at them and lift its wings and tail. And so an, a little golden eagle in the tree. And remember what I said about their, you know, and their mechanic part of them is hidden probably in that tree that he was perched on. Um, and same with the marmots, of course, they're they're hidden in the in the rock structure that they pop up out of. Do you have any more marmot talk? So this is a, a recollection uh, from Dayland of when they wrote it. Uh, when we passed some marmots above the next tunnel, peeking up from the rocks at the train, the narrator said they must be a whistling to all you pretty gals. This usually elicited an embarrassed giggle from any young women that happened to be on the train. So, like, this was one of the more uh, chauvinistic jokes that landed and was was seen as, like, cute. There is another one that we'll find when we go to bear country that does not land ever. And it would get, like, horrible, horrible responses, like boos. So, we'll leave it at that. Wow. I didn't find that one. I'm excited for that. (laughs) We got one. (laughs) Um, We did kind of like bypass the raven. So let's talk about ravens for just a second. I have Disney's technicians have done well, too well. In fact, the birds in nature's wonderland are so realistic that blackbirds have been attacking animated ravens perched in the trees of nature wonderland. So this is John Gerlach, who who was maintenance person there. He said, my job was to wake up the nature's wonderland birds. You see their beaks mechanisms would get rusty and so they couldn't sing well. I would hold the bird's beak open with one hand and with an eyedropper on the other hand, I would squirt some lubricating oil into the beak. <laughs> well, one Sunday while I was at my bird waking chores, Walt slipped up silently and said, how you doing, doc? <laughs> but anyway, essentially, these ravens got injured because of the like crows and blackbirds that would like peck at them and like take chunks out of them. <laughs> so they frequently had to be maintenance you know maintained because of that because they they would be harassed by the local birds well you know as somebody who is not familiar with raven o'clock or crow o'clock what do you guys call it out there crow hour it's crow, crow hour. hour yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, you guys have some serious serious birds yeah, it's and the reason for that, if you're ever curious, is that there's they just nest in the trees in Disneyland. So they go out during the day and they've done this. This is part of their like migrating patterns of what they do. So they go out during the day and then at a certain hour, right at like twilight, they all come back into Disneyland. You'll see just massive amounts of crows every night at this around the same time. And they land and they roost in the old, very old now trees that are in Disneyland because they've been around for, you know, it's the 1950s, right? So, yeah, it's called, I, I call it Crow Hour. I don't know if everybody else does, but it's really well known to people who know Disneyland. Well, this is just something that happens every night. And it is a little bit strange. It's a little bit like the birds. <laughs> they all kind of come in at once. 
Uh, makes for some really cool video and photos and stuff, though, too, if you catch it just right. And yeah, we were we were over by what? It's a small world, and it happened mm-hmm. when Mel and I yeah. were there, and I was like, "This is freaky." <laughs> well, it just happens every night, so like you're like, "Oh, it's crow hour," and then you just kind of like go about your day. So yeah, that does happen there, and so it makes sense that they would feel territorial of some random birds suddenly being in these trees, in uh, mm-hmm. probably new trees. You'd be like, "What is happening here?" You're in my territory. So that's typical how crows and everything, you know, how they react to fake birds, you know. Some some would say that's so raven. <laughs> that's an old school joke. <laughs> I, well, dude, we're old school people. This is called history. We don't have new jokes. We have old stuff. <laughs> we have old dusty ones. <laughs> yeah. I just think we should we should pause there and yeah. uh, head to Cascade Peak next week, I think. That's yeah, I say we I say we do Cascade Peak Bear Country and then dip into the Living Desert and that's probably good for next week. We did talk a lot about marmots and beavers and <laughs> and deer. No bears, oh my. <laughs> no bears. <laughs> Talked about a lot of damn creatures, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Distory. We really loved going over all of these um, fun animals. Maybe not all of the ones in North America, but certainly a couple of them. And uh, we'll continue to do so next week as we head into Cascade Peak and Bear Country and the Living Desert. Kirk, do you have any final thoughts as we wrap up? Don't brush your marmots they're supposed to look all <laughs> flim flammery that's right don't stop grooming your marmots <laughs> an unkept marmot is a good marmot <laughs> excellent all right well thank you everybody for joining us for this episode we really appreciate you guys being here with us as always uh we love uh hearing from you guys as well about how you're enjoying history so thank you for reaching out with all these really kind comments that you've been sending. And um, we will head back to Mind Train Through Nature's Wonderland next week. But until then, we'll see you next week for Distry.